Planning a trip to one of the great national parks? L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit llbean.com explore. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey everybody, it's Eric here alongside Rod again, and we're continuing with our Big Ten preview shows. We're getting close to the end. We're at number three today, which is Ohio State. The Buckeyes finished last season at 20-12. and 12. They were 12-8 and eight in the Big Ten and lost the round of 32 to Villanova. They were number 31 overall in Ken Palm, number 13th in offense, and surprisingly number 111th on defense. They shot extremely well, uh, number 41 in three-point percentage and 35 in two-point percentage, and they were 47th as well in free throw percentage with an, a number 87 uh, standing in free throw attempts per games. Uh but their weakness, of course, was on offense, was the rebounding at 138. And the defense, like I mentioned, is a little strange. They were good against twos, but really bad on the defensive rebounding with a rating of 206th and 193rd in three-point percentage. So it was a season for Holtman, I guess, that has been kind of like many of his seasons, where he has a promising team, he has a lot of players, and, it, and you certainly feel like he didn't quite get everything out of his team that he could have. Uh, and you know, there are times when they looked, were dominant and really good. And other times where they just really couldn't put things together, I guess is how, sort of how I felt like with Ohio state that they're not, a, they've not really been a consistent team to any sort of extent, a large period of time throughout the season, which is, I think what has been limiting them from being really successful at the big 10 level. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, that, that's your impression of the, the Buckeyes, but again, just a, a, a sort of a team of what ifs. Well, I, I think a few things. It's unquestionable that since his first season, which was a surprisingly good year, if you remember a year where they had uh, Bates Diop and Jashan Tate kind of who were holdovers from the Fad Mata era, um, really explode as veterans and lead Ohio State to a surprisingly good year, Holman's first season. Since then, it's been a lot of what we saw last year, which is flashes that show you the potential, but a consistent lack of consistency. So if you look at how they performed <laughs> last year, they were good enough to beat Duke in the big 10 ACC challenge. And it was in Columbus, but right. still they beat Duke on the other side of the ledger. They closed the regular season by losing three of their last four, which included a loss on the road at Nebraska and at home, or maybe this was reversed. One was at home. One was on the road to Maryland and Nebraska, which was just inexplicable. So they finished, I think 12 and eight in the league. Right. But they should have maybe been even better than that. And yet they, they kind of folded down the stretch. We saw a similar thing happen the year before where they were in contention for a share of the big 10 title at one point and then faded down the stretch and finished a few games off the pace. So there's been that habit. The other thing that's happened in the last two years running now is they've been shockingly bad on the defensive end. Last year, it's, it's strange because, as you mentioned, the thing that you usually lean on as the most predictive element of how effective a team will be defensively is how they defend twos, because that's going to tend to be the majority of the shots that are taken. It's also the element of defense that's considered to be the most controllable. And they were really good against twos, but they couldn't defensive rebound to save their lives. I mean, I think Michigan state's had a problem in that area the last few years. They've been nowhere (laughs) nearly as bad as Ohio state was last year. 
And it's hard to understand because it's not like Ohio State didn't have some size. They didn't have huge guys, but EJ Liddell, um, Zed Key, Kyle Young, they had enough on the inside where at least based on physicality, it shouldn't have been a problem. And yet it was. It was a horrible problem. And then teams killed them shooting the three. Now, some of that is usually modern analytics will suggest that some of that is luck, but when you take it over the course of a whole season, I think you can probably conclude that at some level, at least they just weren't very good or as good as they needed to be in terms of limiting good looks. Um, I, I just refuse to believe that that's entirely a matter of luck to some degree. Sure. Not entirely. So do you think with the three point shooting that, in some respects, the fact that you're such a poor defensive rebounding team, you're out of position then. Good point. And it's easy, once the opponent gets an offensive rebound, you can kick it out and you're going to have more open look. It's a really good point. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because you do seem to see it so often. And I haven't seen a charting to see whether the cliche actually stands up to analysis, but I suspect it does to some degree for the reason you just suggested. There's the line you'll hear at game analysts, color guys use about how you know, giving up an offensive rebound just tends to lead to dagger three so often. And there is a truth to what you just said, that if if everybody's scrambling for a rebound off a missed shot, the offensive team gets it and can kick it back out on the perimeter, the odds seem to be, it stands to reason, the odds that you're going to get a clean look on that shot are probably pretty good. You know, better than if... It's like a fast break bucket. Yeah, better than it's to some level better than if you're just trying to generate normal half court offense. It also tends to be really deflating for a defensive team too. You get a missed shot. You can't get the rebound and then they kick it out for a wide open three on the second chance that just, I mean, you know, any fan can tell you watching that or a player (laughs) or coach, anybody involved in the game can tell you how deflating that feels. And I suspect that Ohio state probably struggled in that way. Some as well last year. So when you can't get stops and I mean, to be 111th in defense, a big 10 team, that's bad. That's that's Iowa. That's Iowa bad. That's Nebraska bad. That's just bad. And it goes to show you that if you're that bad defensively, even if you're a very good offensive team, which Ohio State by any measure was, great shooting team, um, not spectacular in limiting turnovers, but not a disaster. Uh, but, uh, but again, shot the ball extremely well, got to the free throw line a lot, and then made their free throws, hit threes, hit twos, had two major league scoring threats, especially the second half of the season in Liddell and Branham, two go-to guys, really. Um, they had all of that going for them, and yet they were only mediocre, really, because the defense let yeah. them down. So I think that's what you look at in the analysis of what went wrong. And, and again, these are, these are patterns. Now, I, I will say this. I just saw, as we're recording this, um, Chris Holtman got yet another recruit uh, for the 23 class. And we're going to talk about their incoming class this year, which is for 22, which is very good, both in terms of freshmen and transfers. And they've got a 23 class that on paper, at least, looks to be right there with Michigan State's as like a top five group at the moment. So Holtman seems to have accelerated his recruiting lately. Um, But he needs, in my mind, he needs to start getting results. And by results, I don't mean go 12 and eight in the big 10, get a tournament bid, lose in the first round, or maybe the round of 32, but you're out by the end of the first weekend. Ohio state has enough presence and enough resources and enough tradition as a program and enough advantages as the major school in a talent rich state and also a big enough brand that they can go out of state recruit as well. Um, They have enough advantages that, I don't see why they would settle for that. And to me, that March performance, big time performance hasn't been great either, but March performance is the real letdown for Chris Holtman. And I, I found myself saying this the last couple of years, is there going to come a time where the heat gets turned up if he doesn't perform better than this? Because 
quite honestly, it's been proven the last several coaches at Ohio State that you can win big. I mean, Thad Mata had that program humming for quite a stretch. Jim O'Brien took them to a Final Four. Randy Ayers took them to a Final Four, for God's sake. <laughs> so you could, Gary Williams had that program very good before, in a very good standing before that. So you can win big at Ohio State. You can think about Big Ten championships, Final Fours, even national championship contention. It's totally realistic. The only thing that I think helps Holtman buy maybe a little more time is that Ohio State is so football-centric that it just doesn't ever feel to me like there's immense pressure on the basketball job, right. you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think he'd have to do more losing than he's done to really be feeling the heat. But I do find myself wondering, is there going to come a time where the Ohio State administration or the fan base or boosters or all of the above look at it and say, you know what, this isn't good enough. Because right now, Chris, I mean, if people want to talk about Chris Holtman is a great coach, my response to that is say he hasn't done much to demonstrate that. Not in my mind. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, you want to be take, I mean, Christ, Brad Underwood's done more. Right. Yeah. Way more. Brad Underwood's got a Big Ten title for his, for as questionable as I think he is at a certain level in terms of can he make Illinois a truly great program. You know, he's done way more than Chris Holtman in a roughly similar time frame. So one of the questions I have before we go into the players is you're looking at the Big Ten now. We've There are a number of teams that we looked at from last year who are really good offensively and poor defensively. I mean, we've always traditionally had Iowa in that sort of category, right. but we had Purdue. We've had Ohio State now a couple of times. Uh, yeah. And I feel like traditionally the Big Ten was probably stronger the defensive end than they were on the offensive end. And maybe that's not maybe that's not accurate. Do you think this is like a trend to the Big Ten where you have just defensively that's not quite as strong as it's been in the past and now there's more focus on scoring? I would need to see it be a little more sustained to believe it to be a trend. Um, I do think it's worth noting. I think it's particularly interesting when it comes to Purdue and Ohio State because these are programs and, and more specifically coaches who have typically had good defensive teams. Chris Holtman had a great defensive reputation at Butler yeah. and his first couple of teams at Ohio state were pretty good too. And then all of a sudden the last two years, it's fallen off dramatically. Matt painter for forever has been a really good defensive coach. And all of a sudden they fell completely off a cliff. So I'm going to need to see it be more sustained to believe there's something more to it. I think you're absolutely right about the big 10 historically. That's, you know, if you look at defensive rankings, all right, the top, if you're in the, if you're say 100, the 111th as Ohio state was, you're still in the top one third of teams defensively across the country. Right. right? But by big 10 standards, you are off. <laughs> um, that tells you something Michigan state. I can't remember where MSU because I haven't done the MSU preview yet, but that last year's team was one of the poorest defensive teams. Tom Izzo's had, and it was in, it was definitely in the top 100. You know, it was better than Ohio yeah, right, state yeah, was yeah. Uh, better than Purdue, better than Iowa. Um, that tells you something about what the expectation is. Uh, and, I guess I don't, what I don't see, maybe speaking directly to your point or maybe what's behind it, what I don't see is I don't see coaches just suddenly deciding, hey, you know what, we're just going out there trying to outscore right, yeah, people. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to turn into, you know, a version of what, say, the ACC used to be, where it's just really loose, um, offense-oriented basketball. Nobody really cares that much about getting gritty and tough uh, defensively. Uh, I, I, I don't see evidence of that in the Big Ten. Not yet. But it's worth, it's worth watching to see if these guys can get it back on track because they have to. I mean, in both Ohio State and Purdue's cases, more so Purdue's, but Ohio State too, you look at how good the offenses were and you say, God, if we'd even had – a Big Ten average defense, say a top 50 defense, what could we have yeah. been? 
What could we have done in March? Could we have won a Big Ten title? You know, and I think the answer is probably yes, or at least yes, that it would be possible instead of their seasons going the way that they did. The tricky thing, of course, is that, you know, you can look at a defense and say, well, defenses are worse, but maybe it's possible that since you're facing Big Ten offenses, if the offenses in the Big Ten have gotten better, they actually are, you know, just as good. Now, I don't think that's actually the case, but I think that'd be one, you know, one argument for the defense getting worse, at least from a ranking standpoint. The other is, you know, you look at Ohio State and, and I would even say, you know, lump Michigan State into this last year, the, the lack of def- defensive rebounding or the, the trouble with that really makes your, really hurts your defense, you. right? I mean, that, yeah. and so if you just cleaned up that part, you probably would have a much better defensive ranking that puts you sort of normal, right? And look, historically, the Big Ten tends to be a league that it is very difficult to offensive rebound effectively in. Teams do it. Michigan State, obviously, obviously, uh, historically, Purdue historically has been very good in that area. And then sporadically, other programs have been, depending upon who the coach was and what they emphasized. Um, but as a rule, Big Ten teams tend to emphasize effective defensive rebounding. That tends to go with slower tempos mm-hmm. and you know all those things the Big Ten gets criticized for over the years. So to see teams struggle the way Ohio State did last year in that category is shocking. Yeah. Because it just doesn't happen very often. And I can't point to a good reason for it. I can't look at them and say, well, you know, they were really undersized. And, they know, I mean, no. E.J. Liddell wasn't a huge guy, but he was a monster. Zed Key is a physically big guy. Kyle Young, when he was healthy, at least, was a wrecking ball. And so why should that team have had to struggle the way they did defensive rebounding? You know, I think the perimeter group certainly had something to do with it, but, you know, that shouldn't happen either. Malachi Branham was a physical freak. Why wasn't he a more dominant defensive rebounder? I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to know if it's just an emphasis from the coaching staff or just the players just don't seem to value it as much and they don't go after it. I mean, we said the same thing about Michigan State. You have Julius Marble, you have uh, Marcus Bingham, you've got – players that forever you have every reason to think that they'd be good dominant rebounders and good defense rebounders. And they just weren't right. And well, and then again, the, per, you know, I go back to the perimeter right, right. group. So why was a guy with Gabe Brown's physical tools, not a more consistently effective rebounder. There's not a great yeah. answer to that. You know, well, let's talk about the players departing for Ohio state. And like many of the teams we're gonna, we've talked about at the big 10, they're going to, there are a lot of them. And so there's, there is an almost complete yeah. turnover in this team. Uh, from last year to this year. So f- highlighting the players department is, of course, EJ Liddell. He's a 6'8 junior. He had a great season at Columbus, a great career. He averaged 19.5 points a game on 49, 37, and 77 shooting. He also averaged almost eight rebounds a game as well as three blocks a game. He was a true three-level scoring threat, and he was drafted in number 41 spot in the second round by the Pelicans, and unfortunately he suffered a torn ACL, so he'll probably be out for his, his rookie season. Yeah, and that's a really tough break for him. Uh, you know, it's curious to me that he went as low as he did, which yeah. which um, demonstrates, I think, why uh, I'm not ready to become an NBA scout. <laughs> but I suspect, I suspect what it was is there were questions about his ability to defend away from the basket. Because um, he's proven that in terms of his rebounding ability – his defensive ability in the post, all of those things, he fits the small ball four or even five mold that we see in the modern NBA. And offensively, he clearly does because he's developed a legitimate three-point shot. He could face people up and go by you off the dribble. He can get things done in the post. All those things are there. For him to last until where he did, it had to be the defensive end. Um, and, and again, with Liddell, I'm not quite sure why that should have been the case because I look at his physical tools and I think, well, there doesn't seem to be an obvious reason why he shouldn't be at least halfway decent as a pick and roll defender, you know, but he was part of a very, very bad defensive team. So you got to assume some of that was on him and that probably played into him being drafted where, where he was terrible break for him with the ACL and you never know at a, at a inflection point in one's career to sit out a year like he's going likely going to have to that's a very tough break and you know 
I hope for his sake, because he always seemed like a good guy, no reason to dislike him or root against him. Um, I hope for his sake, he's able to find a way to get on track and, and make it work for himself as a pro. Uh, but as a college player, particularly his sophomore, junior years, he was great. Yeah. He was a really, really effective player as a scorer and a rebounder and a rim protector. He did all of those things very, very well. Yeah. And the thing, and the thing with us, you know, we're not watching every game that he's playing. We're not, we're not analyzing or certainly focusing on him and with tape. And there's, there probably are things that the scouts are seeing that we're just, you know, you have to do a lot of sure. analysis, level analysis. We just aren't doing. Sure. But just based on, you know, collegiate oh, yeah. production. No question. He was great. He was tough. Yeah, he was, he was always yeah. a tough, he was always a tough cover. He was, you knew he's going to get his points against you and he's going to hurt you. And just the question is, you know, how badly and if you could overcome that. Uh, because last year he had Malachi Branham with him. He's a six, six, uh, dynamic freshman wing. He was going to be a, good player and he ended up being better than advertised he was quicker than people assumed he was going to be he averaged almost 14 points a game on 50 42 at 83 shooting he grabbed three and a half rebounds a game good skill athletic he could do just about everything and so he went uh, the 22nd pick in the to san antonio in the draft yeah um you know Branham was considered uh to be a very good recruit but I don't think anybody saw the kind of year he had was the kind of year that I think a lot of people had envisioned guys like Caleb Houston or Max right, Christie right, having. Right. And instead it was, it was uh Branham. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, those numbers, those overall score, the overall scoring number looks nice, but it, distorts things even a bit because he was so much better in the second half of the season. Right. So by, by the time they got to the, you know, toward the end of the year, Branham was arguably their best offensive player rather than Liddell. I mean, it had gotten to that point. He was such a tough cover. If he had come back as a sophomore, I would have said he was the preseason favorite for big 10 player of the year. I mean, I, I think that would have been a pretty easy call for me to make. Because uh, I just think a second year in college, I would have put him down for 20-plus points a night easy. Um, very, very good player. Not disappointed that he's gone <laughs> from a <laughs> yeah, Michigan right. State perspective. Yeah. Um, and again, he was a first-round pick. Uh, so we'll see how he develops as he becomes a pro. But very good in one year at Ohio State. Uh, next, we'll talk about Kyle Young. He is 6'8", uh, fifth-year senior forward. He averaged 8.2 points a game, five rebounds a game. He played uh, 27 games because he was always one of the guys who just had kind of dinged up. He shot 50, 29, 79, and you know, his thing, whenever he played, he brought a lot of energy. He was a guy who was – his motor never stopped when he was in the game, and I think that was the thing that defined him as a player was why he's so successful. Yeah, the problem for Kyle Young – is in part because of the way what it's kind of a, a double-edged sword what made him effective as a player his kind of reckless abandon uh his high motor just throwing his body around also was a curse kind of like i was gonna say yeah, just a Kyle Orange, State, yeah, right too. yeah very similar a big man version of that uh i always i probably said this every year of kyle young's seemingly endless career in columbus <laughs> but he was a guy that Michigan State was heavily involved with in the 2017 recruiting class. So there was a group of power forwards. It was him, a guy named Malik Williams, who ended up at Louisville, um, Isaiah Livers, who went to Michigan, and, uh, and then Jaron Jackson, who Michigan State actually got. What separated Kyle Young from some of those other guys is that Kyle Young never seemed to really find his jumper. Mm -hmm. If he had found a legitimate, consistent three-point shot, I think he would have had an even better career. He still had a good career, but for the injuries. But I think he would have been even better if he'd been able to become a true stretch player. Instead, he really struggled with consistency on that, and so it limited his ability to impact games offensively to some degree. But still a very useful player and a grinder and the kind of guy you really like having in your lineup somewhere. Right. Uh, next would be Jamari Wheeler. He was a 6'1 transfer point guard from Penn State. He averaged 7.1 points a game, led the team in assists with 91 to only 51 turnovers. He shot 46, 39, and 86. He was effective offensively, uh, but I think probably 
didn't provide the defense they'd hoped for, which is, you know, exemplified by their defensive. He was, it was, yeah, he was a pretty good defensive player at Penn State. And I'm not putting it solely on him, but you would hope bringing a guy like that in, especially at the spear of the defense, so to speak, point of attack, you would hope he'd make a bigger impact. And clearly he didn't because Ohio State's defense really struggled. My big complaint about Jamari Wheeler is the same one I had with him while he was at Penn State. He never shot enough. I mean, his efficiency numbers were really good over like the last three years of his career. And they were good last year at Ohio State, too. Now, it's hard to knock him because the team shot so well that, you know, it's not like you're saying, well, you should have taken shots away from Brandon or Liddell. (laughs) Yeah. But but still, I feel like Wheeler always had maybe a little more offense in him than we saw. Um, But, you know, not a bad placeholder. Ohio State, we're going to talk about it as we get into the newcomers they brought in, particularly one guy. But. Ohio State has really kind of struggled to find an answer at that position. I mean, you really have to go back to the Aaron Kraft, Shannon Scott era to find consistent point guard play over a period of time at Ohio State. Um, So that's a run of several years now. I mean, we're probably talking about a seven, eight year run where they haven't ever quite nailed it. And I think Wheeler was okay as a stopgap. He wasn't bad. He was actually a little better than some of the other guys they've had at that spot over the years recently. But um, still not a strength for this team at the end of the day. Well, Justin Arns is, was a 6'5 senior. He averaged 4.8 points a game, started 19 games, shot 35, 35, and 75. Guy who was, I think, a lot better shooter the year before. And he just kind of yes. he just faded away at the end of the season. He was even when he was out there shooting. He, I, I mean, I guess I don't know what his numbers were early in the season, but I imagine he was shooting better than thirty five percent. He ended up electing to transfer to Loyal Marymount for his, uh, for his COVID year uh, rather than stick around because I think he saw the writing on the wall. Yeah, and and the thing with Justin Arns is if he's not taking and making deep shots, yeah, he's probably not helping. He's, very he's much. it. Yeah. Cause that's the one thing he did really well. And as his shot consistency faded, so did his role. So I think you're right. It was probably best for everybody that he move on. Next uh, departure is Michi Johnson, a six, one sophomore point guard. He averaged 4.4 points a game on 31, 32 and 74 shooting. Uh, he just never quite developed into that role to, um, to be a floor leader, he had a lot of turnovers and more turnovers and assists. And so he is transferred to South Carolina. Yeah, it's interesting that he was still able you know, to stay at the high major level, which tells you something about at least how some people see his potential. You know, if you remember, he was a guy who early enrolled. And um, so he started midway through the COVID year. He started playing with Ohio State. And he had some moments early on where it looked like, okay, maybe this guy could be part of the answer at that spot. But last season, struggled to find his shot, didn't really display great playmaking instincts. And so, again, I think the handwriting was on the wall. He decided to depart for greener pastures. But pretty good landing spot with an SEC school, so a chance to still you know, salvage a high-major career. Right. Uh, next would be Cedric Russell. He's a 6'2 transfer from Louisiana. He averaged 4.2 points a game on 44, 43, and, 30, and 67. So he was an outside shooter, but he only averaged 13 minutes a game because his uh, defensive acu- uh, acumen was not very good. Yeah, and, and so they brought him in as a guy. If you remember, they lost uh, Dwayne Washington from the year prior, mm-hmm. and that was a big loss because Dwayne Washington was a big-time shooter, had become a heavier volume guy as well. So I think he was, well, we got to find somebody to replace that. And Russell, you know, sometimes we, we talk about this often, transfer up guys sometimes see their shooting accuracy take a hit because they're playing better defenders. They have a smaller shot window. You know, all right. of those things impact it. But Russell didn't struggle. I mean, his shooting was really good. He just didn't take a lot because he wasn't on the floor enough <laughs> yeah. because I think he wasn't able to defend well enough to earn more minutes. But he was good in the area of the game that they brought him in for. Just, I guess, not good enough in the other areas to get more out of it. Right, absolutely. 
Uh, next is Joey Brunk. He is a 6'11 uh, center. He averaged 2.4 points a game, 1.6 rebounds per game. I believe he came from Butler. He played 28 games, but only averaged eight minutes a game because of injuries. Uh, he did manage to score, I think, what, it's 150 points against Michigan State when we uh, played them in Columbus. Good God. But where he yeah, looked like suddenly I, you know, a, a first-round draft pick. <laughs> yeah. And, and I seem to remember, was it two years prior to that? It was Cassius's senior year. I, when he was at Indiana, I believe Bronk really gave Michigan State trouble in a loss in Bloomington. Yeah. So he kind of had MSU's number for whatever reason. He was a guy that MSU recruited about a thousand years ago, it seems. Uh, But he started at Butler, ended up transferred to Indiana, played there for a bit, and then ended up at Ohio State to to finish out his career. But yeah, a pretty nondescript season, except for that game against MSU in Columbus, where they absolutely could not stop him to save their lives. Uh, next would be Jimmy Sotos, a 6'3 point guard, transferred in for Bucknell, injured, never really played much, played 19 games and uh, only averaged a little under two points a game. Yeah, just an example. You know, sometimes guys transfer in and Bucknell, very good program. Sotos, a very productive player there. So Ohio State brought him in thinking he had a chance to maybe be part of the solution at the point, but he could just never, he missed an entire season with injury his first year and then last year only was able to play sporadically. Um, just never got back on track. It turns out transfers don't always work out, right? So that's, we, we right. consider ourselves yeah. lucky with uh, Tyson Walker. Uh, finally, for players departing, Seth Towns, he was a former Ivy League player of the year. Uh, again, he was never able to really stay healthy and didn't really do much. He retired from basketball in early September. Yeah, uh, this is a guy, really kind of an interesting case. So, he was a top 100 player out of the Columbus area, had offers from Ohio State, Michigan. They both really pursued him. He ended up going to Harvard and was really good there, was Ivy League player of the year. And then he got hurt and sat out an entire year at Harvard. Then he opted to transfer to Ohio State and never got healthy the last two years. Could have played this year potentially, but he early in September he decided – to announce his retirement from the sport sad in that way. I mean, I don't feel sad for him because he's, I believe he got his degree at Harvard before he transferred out um, and presumably would be well on his way. If not have completed a master's degree at Ohio state. So I'm sure he's in very good position to have a productive life, but um, from a basketball standpoint, very disappointing because this was the guy who could play. I mean, I, I don't know that I would have expected he would have been first team all Big Ten, but I think if he had been healthy and played at the level he had at, at Harvard, uh, you're talking about a guy who would have been very productive right. and very helpful to Ohio State. And so they never really got to see anything from him in terms of what he might have been capable of. It just didn't work out. Well, next move on to returning players. And this is a very short category because as, I mentioned, as you can tell, we've almost all their players left the team or um, have left school. So the first one is Zed Key. We've met, talked to him about a little bit. 6'9", junior, big man. He averaged a little under eight points a game, 5.6 rebounds a game. He shot 56% from the floor, 58% from the line. Really good low uh, low block player, good post skills, and started playing more at the end of the season. And it's certainly someone you think that they're going to rely on quite a bit to bring some leadership and some and that, you know, the culture of toughness and such that uh, they've sort of, I think, defines Ohio State in the last couple of years. Well, I think he's a reasonable bet to really boost his production. Uh, his low post game has never been in question. He's a big kid, knows how to use his body to establish space. He knows how to use angles. He's got good touch, uh, has a good sense of pace and timing in the post. He's got all the elements you want to be an effective low post scorer. And I think he'll see the ball a lot more now, obviously with Liddell gone, it's really him as the primary low post target. Now uh, the questions that I have would be, well, defense is in there too, for sure. But, you know, ability to move your feet laterally, that uh, he's not a great athlete, but um, it would be stamina, you know, conditioning because he, he's never played more than 20 minutes a game. 
I think they're going to need more than that out of him this year. Is he up to that? And can he do that and continue to play at a high level with increased minutes? Um, and then the second thing would be the free throw shooting because he is going to draw a lot of defensive attention. And like most active uh, scoring focused big men, he'll be fouled a lot. And you really do want to see that free throw percentage somewhere north of 60% with the amount of the frequency of trips I think he'll be taking this year. So those would be the things I'm looking for uh, for improvement. But I think his production is going to be upticked pretty significantly. I'd be surprised if it's not. Yeah, you'd almost you almost wouldn't be surprised if he's around 10 rebounds a game, like just maybe just a little bit below. Yeah. Uh, next would be Justice Suing, a six-six, uh, three or four man who missed last season with abdominal injury, but uh, assuming he's uh, healthy, he's going to probably be a major player on the team. He transferred from Cal a couple years ago. He averaged ten point seven points a game and five and a half rebounds a game. Shot forty-nine percent overall and thirty-six percent from the three, and led the team in seal. So he's a versatile guy, as you lots of these three-four men, and uh, hopefully, it, I'm sure they're hoping he's a three-level scorer, much like EJ Liddell. I think, look, if Justice Suing can get back to where he was health-wise two years ago for Ohio State, that's a guy I could see being an all-Big Ten-level player at some, you know, first, second, or third team, somewhere in there. Because he he can do a lot of things. I mean, he's a good shooter. He's strong enough and rugged enough to do some damage around the rim. He's got a good enough handle, he's athletic enough to face people up, go by them some. He's an effective rebounder. Just a, I think he's a guy who could help them improve defensively. Some, um, just nice versatility to him. I don't necessarily expect you know twenty points a night, but I think he's the kind of guy who, if you told me he ended up averaging something like fifteen and seven, it wouldn't surprise sure. me. I think he's very good if he's healthy. Uh, finally, for returning players is Eugene Brown. He's a six-seven wing uh, junior. Averaging three and a half points a game in 17 minutes, he shot 44, 23, and 61. Athletic, but obviously he's got to shoot a little bit better from outside to be real effective scorer and uh, be helpful. Yeah, and that's I think you know that's going to determine whether he's able to increase his role or not. Is can he get better offensively? He's another guy though. I look at his tools physically and I think why isn't that guy a hellacious defensive player? Because he's got good size at 6'4". He seems to be pretty athletic. Seems to have pretty good length, wingspan. That should add up to an effective defensive player, but I don't think he's quite gotten there yet. So we'll see if there's improvement on that end. But I, regardless, I think if he's going to make a breakthrough to maybe push for a starting spot or in just increase his minutes, he's got to get better with the jumper. Sure. And now we'll go to newcomers for the team for the season. Uh, first is Isaac Lickakele, a 6'5 transfer from uh, the other OSU, not Oklahoma, not Oregon State, uh, but the other other OSU, Oklahoma State. He can play on or off the ball. He averaged 7.1 points a game last season. He shot 44, 18, and 54, although he did shoot apparently much better this previous season at 44% uh, from three. Uh, he averaged three and a half assists a game to two turnovers. So I think they're probably hoping he can play a little bit of point guard as well. Yeah, this is a guy who I think is probably slated to slot in as an all-purpose perimeter reserve. So they'll use him to provide some support at the point, but he won't play exclusively there. They'll they'll also use him off the ball. I think the three-point shooting, there's obviously been a lot of variance. To go from 44% in the COVID year to 18% last year, that's pretty dramatic, right? Um, I think Ohio State would take something in the middle if they could get say 33% out of them. I think they take right. it, but you know, it, it's, this is important when you're getting a high major transfer, a guy who's done it and been productive, but another decent high major program that bodes reasonably well that he should at least be able to help you somewhere in their rotation. And they're not asking him necessarily to be a starter. In fact, I don't think he will be, but I think he'll play a lot. So a nice addition for a team that obviously needed to go get bodies on the perimeter. And speaking of bodies, Sean McNeil, he's a 6'3", 210-pound transfer from West Virginia. He averaged 12.2 points a game on 41, 37, and 87 shooting. He played a lot of minutes for West Virginia, and expectations he'll obviously fill a rotation spot and maybe even be a starter at the wing. 
I, I think he will start on the wing. And, you know, if you're, if you're Chris Holtman, you like, you like those shooting numbers. You like that. He did it again for another, another guy from big 12 program played for a tough coach in Bob Huggins and was productive. So they're going to count on McNeil to be a big part of what they do. Um, because obviously they lost, you look at the guys that they lost, they lost a lot of shooting. They lost a lot of backcourt minutes. So McNeil would be part of that equation for sure in eating some of those up. Uh, next is a transfer up from uh, Wright State, 6'6 wing, Tanner Holden. He averaged 20.1 points a game and seven rebounds a game for Wright State. He shot 50, 34, and 79. And certainly seems like the kind of guy who may be successful at the Big Ten level. Yeah, he had a 37-point game in a play-in victory over Bryant last last NCAA tournament. So put aside the very impressive seasonal numbers, he really produced in a big moment for them. That, I think, bodes well. This is a guy who was very highly coveted in the portal, and Ohio State thinks it's a big deal. They got him. I think he's absolutely going to be a starter. Um, he's proven to be able to score in a variety of ways. Quietly, I think the thing that maybe could be really helpful for this team are those rebounding numbers. To be a wing and average seven boards a game, and I understand it's right state, that's the horizon. It's a different situation than Ohio State, but even if he could come in as a wing and be like a five rebound of a night guy, that would be really helpful to maybe getting that defensive rebounding problem shored up a little bit. So I'm focusing on that as one area where he could really help this team. But obviously, they're going to expect that he helps them as a, as a scoring option as well. And I think he will be the other starter sure. on the wing. And then we'll talk about recruits. So first is Bruce Thornton, a top 50 recruit out of Georgia, 6'2 point guard, who uh, comes in as a this is tough physically together and strong defensively. And obviously, as you talked about before, they had some trouble at the point guard position last year. It's really not everything they hope for. And do you think this is the guy who's going to be able to play into that role? Obviously, as a freshman, it's a tough, tough position to be in. I think he's going to he's got a great shot to be the starter, and I would expect him to be the starter. Um, you know, he's he's well regarded. His father was an NFL player, so you put that together with just how he looks. If you've seen, if you've seen this guy, if you've seen pictures or video of this guy, he's a strong physical kind of point guard. He's put together. He looks like a, looks like a tailback, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so I, what I understand about him, I think that he's got a chance to be effective um, they like his potential defensively, and if he can be good there as a freshman, that's a big deal. Um, you know that would help this team for sure. He seems to have good playmaking instincts. Uh, the question marks around him are, you know, deep shooting consistency, and sometimes judgment. Even though he's capable of being a very good playmaker, sometimes judgment isn't a hundred percent there. Those are things that are very commonly issues with young players at that position. So. I don't think the question here is talent. I think the question is how quickly does he adjust to being able to play within the offense, make the right plays and make others around him better. That's the question mark, but the talent level is clearly there. So another freshman recruit, Bryce Sensenbaugh, 6'6", 240 pounds out of Florida. He was a, a top 100 recruit. And again, you know, this is a really good recruiting class for Ohio State. And the expectation he plays at either the three or the four with uh, his athletic ability. Yeah, it, this is going to be a really interesting one to watch because in the recruiting class, he was not as hyped as other guys like Thornton and, and one other guy, one or two other guys actually were ranked ahead of him. But he played, they have a, an equivalent to Moneyball in Columbus called the Kingdom League, which is a similar scenario. They have ex-pros come back and play college guys. You know, it's a similar kind of deal. And this kid apparently absolutely tore it up, had a 51 point game, um, had a lot of people thinking that he could be this year's Malachi Branham, 
kind of, you know, well-regarded, but not necessarily seen as an instant dominant player and yet comes in and becomes that. Uh, what I think is interesting about him is you look at his size at 6'6", 240, and that's impressive. Yeah. And they say he's also a very good athlete and has a lot of versatility to the point that they think he can help them at a few different positions, not just one. I, I look at their lineup, though, and I think I, I don't necessarily see an easy path to a starting role because I think Sewing's going to be the foreman. And then I think the two transfers are going to be on the wing and Thornton will be at the point. So I think he'll be a reserve, but I think he, if he's as good as they're, as they're saying, this is a guy who could be coming off the bench and playing 20, 25 minutes a night. Like a Malik Hall last year where you're playing almost starter minutes in some ways off the right. bench. Uh, so next would be Felix Akpara, 6'11", 210-pound freshman, uh, top 100 recruit as well. He's obviously uh, some guy plays a five, but certainly sounds, or at least from the, from those stats, sounds like he needs to put a little bit of weight on. Yeah, they they need to increase strength, but they and he's a little raw offensively, but they think he can play some right away. They think he he's ready to go as a rim protector. They like him a lot athletically, and they like his compete level, even though he could stand to put on some some good weight. Uh, so I think he'll be, you know, ideally. If you're Holtman, he'll be able to give you maybe 10 to 12 minutes a night as a backup to key. But that presupposes a couple of things. One, it assumes he's actually capable of playing those minutes. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is it presupposes key is capable of giving you 28 to 30, <laughs> right, yeah. which we don't know yet because he's never been asked to do that. But I- I'm assuming he's going to be the backup. And to be honest, he on paper at least – would seem to be a better option as a reserve five than what they had last year because Joey Brunk was so limited due to his injuries. Right. So he may make them better anyway, even if he's still a little raw as a freshman. Uh, next is another top 50 recruit, Roddy Gale Jr., a 6'4 wing, uh, who is has a reputation as a, a really good scorer. Yeah, a really good scorer. And I've seen Ohio State people claim that He's their best pure athlete to come into the program since Sam Thompson. If you remember Sam Thompson from uh, the early part of the 2010s, the teens, that was a guy who could get up. So if Gale is that level of athlete, that is saying something. Uh, I think he's probably going to be in the rotation, although not likely as a starter. Again, they've got those two uh, portal guys who are veterans, and I think they're likely to get the first shot, but this would seem to be a guy who's set to play a role off the bench to some extent. We'll see how much it probably depends on how quickly he adjusts, but they certainly like his future. Uh, another new recruit is uh, Bowen Hardman, a six, three guard from Cincinnati. Uh, who's not expected to play a whole lot this year, but uh, might be someone who you see a few a minute here and there on the spots. Yeah. It's tough to see a rotation role for him because he was the one guy in the recruiting class who was not highly regarded, was not a top 100 guy. In fact, I don't even think he was a top 200 guy. Um, so sort of under the radar, they think he can eventually develop into a 3 and D guy, but probably not this year. And finally, Kalen Etzler, he was redshirt last year. He's a 6'8", 190-pound uh, redshirt freshman who's apparently got added some weight and got a little stronger from last year. But I guess the question will be whether he sees a lot of time on the floor this season. Right. Uh, you know, maybe – it's it's hard to see a big role available for him, but um, you know they claim he's gotten stronger. They claim he's developed more consistency with the outside shot, and I think in the long run they're looking at him as a stretch four type. Um, I could see maybe a few minutes, if, especially if the shots dialed in, um, but probably not a big role available for him. So then we're looking at Ohio State. Is it? Team, you know, when your your projection here is uh, having them third in the Big Ten, uh, obviously it's dependent on a lot of things. Like it's, it's so gummed up at the wing, are they able to get the point guard play that they need from the transfers or at least from the incoming freshmen? Can they survive at the five spot with Key getting enough minutes and with a, a backup? Uh, there are a lot of questions for this team. I mean, I guess you could say, well, there's a lot of potential there too. And so, it <laughs> like it seems feels like a lot of these teams. One, you've got a lot of people who weren't on the team you didn't even watch play last year. And then the second thing is, you know, what are they going to be? You know, what can they work together, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, and, and and there's a lot of parallels between this team and the Illinois team that we just talked about, yeah. right? 
big roster turnovers. But but the difference is this Ohio State team, I think, in having key and suing back, assuming suing is 100%, has more proven guys who have been through it in this program back than Illinois had. And that's the primary reason why I'm giving them a slight edge in the projected standings. Um, I really like those two guys. And I think both of those guys could be very good players this year. I also think that Ohio State's transfers, maybe the names aren't quite, well, they're not quite as big as what Illinois brought in. I mean, Illinois with, with Shannon and Meyer had two of the bigger names in the portal. But I think the guys Ohio State added on the wing are, and, and, and as a backup perimeter guy too, those three guys they brought in seem to make a lot of sense to me. And I think they will prove to be good additions. And then I really like Ohio State's uh, high school recruiting class. Um, I think a couple of those guys have a chance to be really, really good as well. So, you know, it'll be interesting. If, if they're young guys – are as good as advertised, this could actually be a team with a decent amount of depth. And, you know, a, a lot is riding on Thornton being ready for prime time at the point, because if he's not, that will have an impact on how good the offense is. I think the offense has a chance to be really good again, but you know, you have to keep in mind, you lose a guy like EJ Liddell, that's a big loss. And I don't see anybody on this team who's ready to duplicate exactly what Liddell gave them. But I think there's still a nice mix of talent. You know, there's a lot of versatility. And then you add to that a true low post threat and key, who's a guy, you, you know, if you're in need of a bucket, you love having a guy you can just toss the ball into on the blocks and say, go get us one, and he's probably going to be able to do it. And to me, I think he's capable of being that kind of player. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with all of these teams, there are lots of question marks. But I, as I look at it, I think more of them are going to get answered positively than not. And so that's why I've got them finishing here. But could they finish lower? Absolutely. Sure. And, and I think you probably, to your point, when we started this discussion, it's going to come down to what they are defensively compared to last season, right? I mean, if, right, if, they, if they are struggle rebounding, if they struggle stopping, you know, three again, they're going to probably be a, get a, a streaky team where you might run into a team that just can't shoot for one, for one night, but then you're going to get bitten other nights where, and go ahead. And look, to be, to be perfectly honest, that's a big question mark, how much better they can be. I think Sewing's a pretty good defensive player, but around him, how much better can Zed Key be? Because he needs to be better. Is Thornton going to be ready to go at that end as a freshman? How quickly do the portal guys on the wing uh, adjust? All totally legitimate questions, you know? Um, and if Ohio State's not better defensively by a decent amount, they won't finish this high. Right. Well, any other thoughts? I mean, I guess the other thought is when it comes to Holtman, we talked initially about, you know, at some point the heat's going to get turned on. I, I sort of feel like we kind of had this discussion a little bit with Hoiberg a bit, but certainly more with um, uh, with Chris Collins and Northwestern, where these guys, you don't think there's any heat on, but you almost get the feeling like, is this program sort of just kind of not progressing and getting, you know, getting better? Is Are they just sort of in sort of, uh, you know, neutral? they look certainly have good recruiting classes coming in this year and the next year. Maybe, you know, this is just the beginning of something really big, but I, at some point you feel like Holtman's got to really put together a little bit more than he has. You, you would think, um, as I said, you know, near the, near the top of this, there is no good reason why anyone coaching at Ohio state should not be held to an expectation of delivering big things. And it doesn't mean you win a big 10 title every year. It doesn't mean you reach final four every year, but it does mean that you can legitimately aspire to those things more often than not. And that you are in the mix. And I feel as if particularly the last couple of years, Ohio state has been very much a pretender in those ways, both years there were points in the season where they were seen as a potential big 10 title contender 
and a team that could go a long way in March. But by the point we got to the end, it was clear they weren't on that level. They faded hard both years. So, and then the year before that, they just weren't all that good. The the, COVID, the year that was wiped out, the tournament was wiped right, out by COVID. Right. Um, so really, this is a guy who, in my mind, has been relative to what reasonable expectations are at Ohio State. I think he's been thoroughly mediocre. And I don't have any particular animus against him, but I, I think that's a fair assessment. Because if you look at the majority of Thad Mata, to me, Thad Mata is the guy that delivered on what you can be and can aspire to be at Ohio State. You know, he reached, I think he went to two Final Fours at Ohio State. He won a few Big Ten championships. I don't remember how many, but I think at least three or four. Um, And they, even if it was a year where they didn't win anything, they were still in the mix. You still looked at them as, Hey, that's a team we've got to deal with, you know? And they had a, they had a, um, an approach, a mentality. I don't think actually that his program was very different in terms of the things they valued from Tom Izzo's program. You think about it to me during say from 2006 to 2014 or 15, there was no better rivalry in the Big Ten than Michigan State, Ohio State. I think if you go back and you think about it, you think about all those games and you think about where those two teams were in the standings year in, year out, that was the best rivalry in the conference. Yeah, no question. I, I always go back to that Big Ten uh, tournament championship game in 2012, which Michigan State ended up winning. And you know, they cut uh, the, the journey had their uh, segment on the game, you know, at the, at the end of, at the end of it. And I remember them cutting to a Jared Sullinger's father in the stands saying something like it's a war. And it was, it was a physical war. And that's how all those games were. And yet you never felt there were cheap shots that there was a level of, I think, mutual respect between the programs because they tended to value the same sorts of things and they achieved so much at the same time. And so that to me is if I was an Ohio state fan, I would look at that era and say, well, that's the standard. That's what can be done at Ohio state because we have the resources, we have the tradition, we have the recruiting turf, we have the brand, we have all of those things that make that possible. And that's a reasonable expectation for us to have. And Chris Holtman has not come close to delivering on that yet. His, his run at Ohio State is basically not all that different than the end period of Thad Mata's run. It's not really that different. So to me, if I were an Ohio State fan, he would be on the clock. I'm not sure if that's actually the case. And again, you have to give credit where credit's due. He has clearly upticked his recruiting, which I did not think was was great his first few years in Columbus. You know, they've had to they've had to take a lot of transfers over the last few years to supplement things. And with the 22 class and now what looks like the 23 class is going to be, that might be shifting a little bit. He might be getting back to establishing his thing mostly with high school recruits. And I think that is where you want to be if you have that choice as an option available to you. So we'll see if that starts to make a difference, if he has, in fact, improved the talent level. If he has the kind of season that I'm projecting for them to have, I think it'll all be fine. Yeah. But I do think he needs to do it. Well, and this is the kind of season that with the volatility in the Big Ten, I think you could you could see a team like Ohio State fall as low as seventh or eighth, right? I mean, it's not like totally impossible to imagine if a couple of things and, don't work, and you could see them win yeah, it. Yeah. Right. And you could see them win it. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it is that kind of year. It's a high variance year where we're getting into differentiating between these teams. As I'll stress it again, you are really flipping a coin. And I gave you my, my reason for separating Ohio state and Illinois into three and four pretty much comes down to, I think Ohio state's handful of returnees are a little better and have proven a little more than Illinois. Yeah. And that's about Zed Key versus Coleman Hawkins. I give Key a little bit of an edge. Justice Suing versus the two freshman per, or two sophomore now perimeter guys for Illinois. I give Suing an edge. That's really it. 
Right. Yeah. All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for this. And we have one more preview to do before we get to Michigan State. So that uh, would be next one will be Indiana. So make sure you tune in for that. Also, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, obviously go to your podcast player's choice you're listening to. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Continue to recommend it to your friends and other Spartan fans so they can be prepared for the season when it's coming up here. And until the next time, the Final Four is not on the schedule. Go green. Thank you.